Amazon is not only crushing its competition, it's crushing democracy as well. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for Central America is based on an economic model on foreign investment and foreign profits, on the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. The guy who really founded that connection between Israel and the evangelicals was Bibi Netanyahu. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand, much too much of a role in this country, and without them knowing what it was doing. There's not going to be a war by Russia to conquer the United States. There's not going to be a war by China to conquer the United States. No country is going to conquer the United States. The United States is destroying itself because of the size of its military. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy, and uh, people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Amazon is not just another in a long line of American success stories or of big, powerful corporations whose CEO makes a lot of money. In the new book, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America, author Alec McGinnis presents a tour of a country whose citizens' existence has been intertwined with a single corporation. His book explores the effects of the widespread erosion of power and possibility, what it means for all of America, the hundreds of millions of regular people. With the country's wide loss of what used to be dependable manufacturing jobs, the uncomfortable realities revealed in McGillis's book, unless the problems created by Amazon are addressed, the world of Amazon and Jeff Bezos are likely indicators of what work and life in general will look like for the working people in America for years to come. The now universally adopted convenience of simple one-click shopping carries with it an incredible irony of the massive effects on just about every aspect of American life. Alec McGillis is a senior reporter for ProPublica and the recipient of many literary awards. He worked previously at Washington Post, Baltimore Sun, New Republic, and his journalism has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, other publications, and he's author of The Cynic, a 2014 biography of Mitch McConnell. Alec McGillis, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Well, thanks for having me. The title of this book, Fulfillment, has more than one meaning. After a tremendous amount of research and interviews all across the country, how did you come to write this book, and how did you come up with this title? Um, I, I came to write the book actually not, not initially setting out to do a book about Amazon. Um, I wanted to write a book about the growing regional disparities in the country, which I would see as I traveled around as a national reporter, uh, first for the Washington Post, uh, going back to sort of the 2008-2009 period when I was covering the Obama campaign and and then just covering the Great Recession around the country and just struck by just how, the, by the gap between the, uh, how these all these struggling cities and towns that I would see in the Midwest, Appalachia, and elsewhere, and then I'd come back to Washington, D.C., and just be overwhelmed by the prosperity and complacency on display there, and the disconnect from what was going on around the country, and in years since wanted to write about that gap, which kept getting bigger between kind of winner, winner take all cities and and left behind cities and towns, and and finally after the Trump election in 2016, decided that I really needed to write about it because it was clearly having an effect on our politics, 
and and then settled on Amazon as the frame through which to tell the story of those disparities. Um, and Amazon made sense as a frame for two reasons. One is that it's so ubiquitous now in our life that that it's just a handy thread to kind of take you around the country and, and sort of show you what we're becoming as a country, as a society, um, because it's just everywhere and it permeates our lives. Um, so it's kind of a handy thread in a sort of metaphorical sense. But then it's also a good frame because it's, uh, because it itself ex- helps explain these disparities. It has been um, helping mm. to drive these regional, inequ- this regional inequality because that inequality between places, that concentration of wealth in certain places is linked to the concentration of our economy in certain companies. Um, mm. And so that's that's how I kind of came around to Amazon as a frame. So the book is not really about Amazon itself, but about Amazon's America, about everything in the shadow of the growing shadow of Amazon. Yes. And Fulfillment worked really well as a title. I, I settled on it very early as a title because it, um, it, it, it evokes Amazon without specifically naming Amazon. Mm-hmm. And it has obviously several layers of meaning. Um, and so it you know, worked nicely to, uh, to evoke something kind of broader that was happening to our country. Yeah, it seems like buying stuff is not the only path to real fulfillment. I just right. get that sense. The convenience of one-click online shopping was powerful before COVID, then came the pandemic. Many people in America lost their jobs and have taken serious economic hits. How does did Amazon's bottom line in 2020 and the wealth of uh, founder and CEO J- uh, Jeff Bezos, how did the pandemic affect Bezos' wealth? Oh, it just had this enormous rocket fuel effect on Bezos and the company. I mean, there were new numbers that came out just yesterday there for the company for the first quarter of this, of this year. It's, right. The numbers are just stunning. Like, it's hard, it really is hard to get your arms around just how much yeah. bigger the company has grown during the pandemic. Sales up 44% oh. um, for this past quarter over last year, you know, over an already huge base. Um, the, the, the company's stock has nearly doubled in a year. Bezos's personal wealth from March of 19, March of 20 to March of 21, up $58 billion, $58 billion. Um, and, um, you know, this, this at a time when, yes, as you said, that so many of us were, were having such a hard time, so yeah. people were, were really struggling. And so you see this really kind of absolute divergence between um, between the rest of the country and this company. I was just looking at a the sort of wrap of these new numbers in the in the Times by the Times um, Tech Times Tech Business Columnist and Shira Ovid, and the way she put it was so true. She, she said, "America's technology superpowers aren't making bonkers dollars in spite of the deadly coronavirus." Mm. and its ripple effects through the global economy, they have grown even stronger because of the pandemic. That's both logical and slightly nuts. Um, And that's what's happened. My goodness. And Amazon is headquartered in Seattle. Your book, uh, your research visited a number of far-flung Amazon locations and the effects uh, in many corners of its massive physical footprint. Um, how have its labor practices and political ruthlessness affected its home base? How has Seattle been changed by Amazon? Well, Seattle's just been completely transformed into into a sort of hyper prosperity. This is the book, you know, basically makes the case that that these growing disparities between winner take all cities and left behind cities are 
are bad not just for the left behind places but also bad for the for the winner take all cities that end up dealing with all these effects of, of hyper prosperity whether it's you know unaffordable housing uh, huge rises in homelessness uh, displacement of longtime residents mainly black residents um, the just sort of a loss of character of, uh, and identity in the town, the um, congestion, and Seattle has, has experienced all these things. I mean, you've had this, the transformation of a city that used to be a uh, very sort of middle-class kind of town, um, a little bit rough at the edges, mm-hmm. um, with, you know, still sort of the, 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 the somewhat the feel still of a, of a national resource kind of outpost out, out there in the Pacific Northwest where it used to kind of you know, bring the the timber down from from the Great Forest in the Northwest to be shipped out to, to San Francisco and 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 and, and you know of course the sort of the, the, the grunge scene of the nineties oh, and, right. and 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 then just now transformed into this place that is basically unrecognizable. I mean, where you have a an Amazon corporate campus just uh, just north of downtown with about forty five thousand Amazon employees now in Seattle proper. Another twenty-five thousand are going to be coming into the, the very fancy suburb across the lake, Bellevue. Um, you've got just you know so all these these new gleaming Amazon buildings that um, include you know Amazon's a big dog company. It very much encourages dog ownership. So thousands of people bring their dogs to work, and there's a dog uh, dog sort of a dog park mm-hmm. terrace, something story of one tower. Um, you look out over the skyline with your with your dog and it breaks at work. Um, dog food cafe on the ground ground floor. Um, housing prices just through the roof. Basically, the second highest appreciation in the country in the past decade, or after San Francisco. Uh-huh. Um, tremendous homelessness problem. Uh-huh. Um, and I focused in the book on entire on a on the historic black neighborhood of Seattle. That has um, essentially been just sort of wiped out. I mean, had to basically didn't stand a chance against this incredible surge of prosperity. Um, mm-hmm. Well, so it's just yeah, it's just this complete transformation of a town. Well, at least dogs have a nice time. Never mind the homeless people. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> now, New York City Congresswoman Alexander, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez raised quite a ruckus when she very publicly opposed. Amazon's proposed uh, second headquarters, which the company said said would create between 25,000 and 40,000 jobs to the city in exchange for up to $3 billion in tax breaks and financial intensives. Uh, at, uh, Amazon did pull out. What explains that opposition? How could she be against creation of so many jobs? Well, because it wasn't just her. It was a whole bunch of other people that were also objecting to to Amazon coming in with that second headquarters, and, and it's because New York has already, even with even without um, even sh- short of having gotten an actual Amazon headquarters, has, has itself been feeling the effects of this kind of hyper prosperity. Um, because, and partly because, you know, just what I just described with in Seattle with just incredible housing costs and displacement and homelessness and all the rest of it, and 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 it's partly because New York has itself become. A, a hub for these for these tech jobs. Um, it's it's uh, even even now that it has not gotten an Amazon headquarters. It's got thousands of Amazon jobs, high paid uh. salary jobs. It has um, Google has basically taken over uh, the west side of town. It's basically really? taken over the entire neighborhood of Chelsea. Um, Facebook 
has taken over, um, just has the uh, bought a lot of space inside the old, that beautiful old office, uh, post office building that's across from Penn Station that oh, now yeah. huh. houses the, the new part of the new train station there. Facebook has the rest of that building. Um, Amazon has bought the old Lord and Taylor department store headquarters mm. for its thousand jobs, which is very symbolic. So you've got this. You've definitely have you've had this uh, surge of, of 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 tech wealth into New York, even even though the company is not yeah. quote unquote headquarters for any of the companies. And so, so so people like AOC mm-hmm. objected, you know, have been worrying about this kind of this this sort of soaring uh, inequality that comes with this kind of hyper prosperity. And they were also upset about the. Um, the incredible tax subsidies that that the city and state gave to Amazon uh-huh. um, in exchange for building the headquarters, and so that was that was the sort of the the heart of their complaint. But but what but really essentially drove Amazon out in the end from the from actually putting its official second headquarters in New York was was the company itself objecting to the efforts by local by by her and other local activist types to. To essentially, to require the company to be more union friendly in exchange for coming in, the, 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 where the negotiations kind of turned to was, was, um, city and state officials saying, okay, well, we'll go ahead and do this deal. We'll give you these subsidies, but we really are going to need you to be more accommodating of union organizing in your New York warehouses, um, specifically a big, huge warehouse in Staten Island, where there had already been. Some some labor ferment and and that was a bridge that Amazon refused to cross. Yeah. That was a, that for them was the deal breaker, and that's when Amazon said it was Amazon that, that pulled out of this. It wasn't right. um, was the city or the state of the Amazon that said, "Okay, how to hell with this? We're not going to do this after all." So they took their ball and went home. I get it. <laughs> right, and they put and they put their what, well, and they, what, what they did is that they ended up putting their second headquarters. Only in outside Washington D.C. Initially, they were going to split this new second headquarters between New York and D.C. And instead, uh, Arlington, Virginia, just across the Potomac from D.C., will now get the the only second headquarters. And, it, and that in itself is the ultimate example of sort of a winner-take-all effect of of how these things work. Mm. Because Washington D.C. is already the wealthiest metro area in the country, already experiencing tons of uh, you know crazy housing prices. Um, and displacement on its own, right? And now it's going to get even more of that with these 25,000 more high-paid jobs. Um, it's just, you know, it's a classic rich get kind of effect. Mm. Ah, amazing. And we thought there was the Gilded Age back in the 1890s. For those who have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking about... Uh, a kind of a threat to democracy, really. Uh, we're talking with uh, author Alec McGillis. His new book is Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. It's all about Amazon. And Jeff Bezos, who is the richest person in the world, his wealth is beyond comprehension. I mean, he's approaching $200 billion, and a billion is a thousand million for the... I, I just... You. What about taxes? You liken his approach to tax avoidance to a Swiss Army knife. Tell us about that, please. Well, I'll use that phrase just because the the company has been so effective at evading, avoiding taxes at so many different levels of of government and and of taxation. So it has all these different tools for the different 
sorts of avoidance that are that are needed to keep its tax bill down. I mean, it goes all the way back to the company's founding when when the whole initial its whole initial strategy was to was to uh, defeat its rivals, namely uh, books bookstores, um, because it was not going to have to assess sales tax on, on on the books that it sold because it was doing it over the internet. And at the time, there was virtually no um, sales tax required of e-commerce sales. And so, um, and, and the, the way the, the way the rules basically worked at that time was you only had to assess sales taxes as an, as an e-commerce company in places, in states where you actually had a physical um, presence. And, ah. and so that's why Amazon was a big reason why Amazon initially went to Seattle and not to Silicon Valley with the other tech companies. Because if it was in California, it would have had to set sales taxes on the huge, biggest market in the country. Um, so it goes to a much smaller state, Washington State, and um, and then and then in years following, it actually re- holds back on building warehouses in a lot of big states um, because it doesn't want to have to assess sales taxes on consumers in those states. And so the whole sort of founding strategy was one of tax avoidance, and and so then that's how it starts growing, you know, leaps and bounds initially. Um, and 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 basically, really kind of sidelining a whole bunch of bookstores in um, mm. in that realm, and then, but then, as it gets bigger and bigger, eventually, it has to start putting warehouses just about everywhere because it's it's got so many orders and it needs to meet its one or two day delivery promise, and so right. now you've got the warehouses everywhere. But what it does now, instead of of, of avoiding sales tax um, uh, assessment, it um, it basically demands that, that cities and towns and states give it huge subsidies, tax subsidies, in exchange for building warehouses or data centers in certain places. And um, and, it, and, and cities, a lot of these cities and towns are go along with this because they're mm. so desperate for any kind of new jobs, even low-paid new jobs. And, and what's confounding about this, about their willingness to, to go along with this, is that Amazon needs to be in certain places now with these warehouses. I mean, you're going to make a one-day delivery right. promise. You need to, and and so it's not as if you know they can just like go to Alabama if Maryland refuses them a, a, a tax break. But but nonetheless, a lot of cities and towns are still willing to do this. And so that so that's one, another level of sort of of tax mm-hmm. avoidance, tax reduction. And then but then you know overarching all that is is just their very aggressive um, ability to seek out all the various loopholes that allow them to avoid federal corporate income taxes um, to the point where just a couple years ago when they had another gangbuster year in 2018, they didn't pay a single dollar in federal income taxes. Just stunning. Um, in the last year or so, they've, they've paid about a billion dollars or so in federal income taxes, which is just a sliver yeah. next, to their, next to their revenues and their profits. And 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 notably is actually is much, much less than is paid by another um, behemoth, you know, that we love to deplore, um, Amazon, uh, sorry, at Walmart. Walmart yeah. is where there's, you know, so much to deplore about Walmart, but because of the way it's sort of structured, because the way it's, 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 it's model oh. works, it actually ends up paying much more in federal taxes than does Amazon. Really? Uh, yeah. Amazing. I, I wouldn't have thought that, but uh, that's what your book is there for. And Mr. Bezos is clearly winning, really beyond comprehension from Amazon. But the title of the book is not just about winning. Tell us, please, about Bill Bodani's story and why the chapter 
is titled Dignity. The book was partly meant to sort of to show how, how work has changed for, for Americans, that as we go to this, you know, to this kind of one-click economy and where, where so many people now are working in these warehouses, and the warehouse job has really become, in a way, the, the new factory job. It's become right. the new sort of mass employment option for people without um, a college degree or without specialized training or just looking for for a way, somewhere to work hard to make some money. And if you used to go to the factory or the or the mill, and now you go to the warehouse, they've the companies now it's the second largest employer in the in the country after Walmart, and um, they hired more than 400,000 people in the U.S. alone just last year, which is a stunning figure. And, and so that really is now the mass, new mass employment option. And so, so I wanted to have a whole close look at what that transformation of work means, to have gone from working jobs in, in, in the factory or mill to working in the warehouse. And, and kind of incredibly, I managed to find someone um, right here in Baltimore where I live, a man who has spent several decades working at the Bethlehem Steel Mill in Baltimore, which mm. was, for a time, the largest steelworks in the entire world, with about 30,000 workers, um, an entire, just extraordinary sort of skyline of industrial um, light mm-hmm. down, down on the waterfront, um, southeast of Baltimore, and that whole company town just right there adjacent to the mill. And and um, he worked there for 30 or 30 years. It was incredibly difficult, often dangerous work, um, but he liked it. He found great mm-hmm. meaning in it and, and camaraderie with his fellow workers. Uh, by the end, he was making uh, 35 bucks an hour. Um, and and then he he finally retired in his 60s after one last injury that kind of knocked him out. And But then he decided to go back to work um, uh, some years later, because his pension got slashed after the after the company went bankrupt, and he needed some to make some money, and he went back to work on the exact same piece of land oh, um, wow. because that because that peninsula, uh, the Sparrows Point Peninsula, has been had the steel works has been wiped completely off this vast peninsula. Um, it's just eerie. It's just completely gone, and it's been replaced by a big warehouse industrial park, like a sort of logistics industrial park and business park and it now includes two Amazon large Amazon warehouses. He went to work there driving a forklift and um, making starting out at thirteen dollars an hour mm-hmm. after driving less Bethlehem Steel at thirty five dollars an hour and and just hated the job. Not not just because it's the much lower pay, but because the the, the nature of the work itself was much less meaningful, much more isolating, much more atomized. Um, and he, you know, was just constantly under crazy pressure from these young supervisors to, to to make more and more pallet deliveries on his forklift. Barely had time to go to the bathroom. Um, as an older guy, had to go to the bathroom quite a lot, and sometimes just couldn't make it uh, to the long walk across the, bat, the warehouse without, you know, you had, to, you had to worry about losing losing pay, getting docked pay because of you're taking too much time in the bathroom. So sometimes he would mm. just. Kind of sneak behind his forklift, and, and they're just you know completely undignified. And and so, the the, the shift from the one kind of existence where you have this real feeling of mm-hmm. of dignity and meaning and purpose to this new kind of work where you just you are doing you are you are almost a robot in those warehouses as a warehouse worker. You are right. um, the the work is that in fact as these warehouses have gotten more atom- automated, uh, they've brought in more robots. The work it's 
itself for this. The remaining work for humans has actually gotten more robotic. And you, uh, you know, if you're the if you're one of the, the pickers, which is like sort of the classic um, Amazon job, where you used to used to sort of walk the quarters um, of, and looking for various items as they as the orders came in, you kind of go hunting for them, and you would have to walk a ton. But but there was a certain amount of kind of autonomy in, in that work. You were out on your own, kind of hunting, searching for these things. Um, now the robots, um, you have these crazy robots that are that kind of zoom around with stacks of shelving on top of them, towers of shelves on top of them, and they bring the shelves to the picker who's standing in a fixed location all day. Oh, and just standing there just pulling the items, that all the things that we want, these whatever crap we've ordered that day, right. they pull out of these, um, these shelves, these drawers, um, as the robots bring them to them, and you're sort of at the beck and call of the robots. The robots are driving your pace because they're, they, they're, they're sort of, they're the ones in charge. They, as the robot comes to you, you better you better be ready to take that item out because another robot's going to come with the next thing. And 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 you're you're there still. You have not been replaced by a robot mainly because they've got had, had a hard time teaching robots how to grab things. Um, and so you're there essentially for your your ability to grab. Oh my goodness! So you pick the cotton while the uh, the slave driver tells you where to go. And I'll that's right. unbe- right. just. It's beyond belief. I mean, people don't know it. All I think of is just one click. It's easy. It gets delivered real fast. And you know, many of us had thought that uh, uh, robots would free workers from mind-numbing drudgery, that it might bring fulfillment uh, to workers. But apparently the opposite is true. And many of us got a glimpse inside of Amazon facilities watching the Nomadland movie. What is life really like at the Amazon facilities? You've mentioned a little bit about you can't take too long in a bathroom break. I hear stories of constant surveillance by the bosses. Do tell, please. And what? Uh, yeah, tell us about that, please. The surveillance. Yeah, I mean, well, you are you're under constant surveillance because they know they can track. I mean, there are cameras everywhere, so there's that that um, you know, basic level of surveillance. But then there's also just their ability. Things are so automated that they're able to. They are constantly tracking your performance. You have, you know, your every. They know at every single moment how many items you've picked if you're a picker, or how many pallets you've brought in if you're a forklift driver like Bill Bodani, um, and then all the other various stations on the on the floor. You know, how if you're a, a packer, how many how many boxes you've packed, um, and 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 so, you know, you can essentially be. It's at a point now where you can essentially be. Sort of fired by an algorithm. Like if you're, if the algorithm decides that you're not up to par, you can just be let go sort of automatically for 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 low productivity. Um, so you're just yeah, you're just constantly um, being being watched in that sense. Um, and you know, you mentioned the movie. It's I thought the movie was very powerful, um, affecting as many did. I did write an article, short op-ed for the Los Angeles Times. Pointing out that the movie's depiction of Amazon itself was much more benign, uh. not only not, not more not just more benign than what I observed as a reporter, but but what the book Nomadland depicted. There's a you know, that this movie was based on a on a book about this subculture of of sort of nomadic older um, retirees, semi-retirees going around the country and doing this kind of work, and and the book is gives a much Darker, um, more harrowing depiction of, of the actual work in the warehouses, and not just the not just the conditions, the pressure to perform, and and the sort of aches and pains that come with the work, 
um, but also just the sort of existentially existential bleakness of the work. The the fact that you, as as one of these older women, you know, put it, that you you just feel like all you're doing is you're just you're packing a lot of crap from China that's going to end up in the landfill, right. you know, and 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 that that's or or another you know, the same woman another great phrase that you're you're essentially just you're running the largest vending machine in the world and 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 so that's you know that really that really comes through in the in the book in a way that doesn't so much in the movie um but but yeah these it's it really is it's hard i think for many of us to comprehend what just how relentless and 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 kind of uh, sort of atomized and and rudimentary the work is and there's a and there's a reason why even though they've now raised the pay to to starting pay at fifteen bucks an hour a couple years ago um, which is more than you're gonna make at you know a fast food job it is there's a reason why despite that raise in pay that these jobs have such extraordinarily high turnover I mean, a lot of these warehouses have one hundred percent turnover in a given year because it's just a really really tough and un- unfulfilling job to do in a sense you know we've kind of replaced we've replaced brick and mortar retail jobs with these jobs I mean, and that's basically what's happened and but a brick and, but the job of a retail clerk at, at a department store was of course much less physically taxing than this kind of work much more much less isolating you were around other people you spoke with other people um, and this, this, so this this you know this new kind of work that has replaced that retail job, this new work more greatly resembles assembly line work right. in its physical nature, um, but it's also less well paid than typical factory work. Um, I just saw the other day that the average manufacturing wage in this country is still thirty dollars an hour, you know, despite everything that manufacturing has gone through. Um, so literally double mm. what an Amazon job starts at. And and it's also less meaningful than a lot of factory work because again you're not actually making something you're just packing stuff that's been made halfway around the world. Mm. So the title of the book fulfillment that's what we're talking about today. In case you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The book is fulfillment: winning and losing in one click America. And we're speaking with its author Alec McGillis. And. Uh, Many Americans, as with many Americans who are not right-wingers, I was really hopeful that Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, would vote to form a union. They lost corporate one. Tell us, please, about how that went down, what their tactics were, and if you think the union has a good case with their appeal to the National Labor Relations Board. Well, yeah, I mean, one big reason that Amazon won and they won handily was that the, the law, you know, as it now is written and as, as it stood for decades, is is really slanted against union organizers, against people, organizers trying to organize the workplace, and it just and this really kind of goes all the way back to the Taft-Hartley Act of the early '50s, when when um, industry was alarmed by by the rapid gains of unions in the '30s and '40s, and 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 um, and Congress passed this law that made it made it much harder to, to do. Further organizing, and 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 there's been these efforts over the years to to try to um, to reform those laws, um, but they keep running up against the filibuster in the Senate right now. Once mm. again, there's a, a bill called the Pro Act that yes. passed the House, but 
but its prospects in the Senate are dim. Right. And and so you end up, I mean, the, the you know, starkest example of the slantedness is that is that employers are allowed to just hold constant, you know, sort of captive audience meetings with their workers on the clock where, where they can just, just, just pump all sorts of anti-union propaganda into them while the unions have a much harder time being able to access workers. Um, and so in this case, you know, the union was out there outside trying to, you know, give workers brochures and whatnot at the, as they were leaving the job. And, um, and it's just, it's really hard to, to, to sort of, you know, make, make enough of your case in those moments. In the union, I think, probably erred, erred in, in not um, trying to do home visits. Often one way you try, you try to reach workers sort of off the company turf is to visit them at home. In this case, they did not do that because of COVID precautions, uh, which seems to me a bit excessive. They could have still, you know, gone to knock on doors and shadow people um, out on the front stoop. And, and but they chose not to do that. And so, meanwhile, you had the company pulling all sorts of tricks, I mean, sort of every trick in the book, to down, right down to changing the stop, getting this, the local officials to change the stoplight um, timing at the at the warehouse exit so the workers would have be sitting at the red lights less less oh. uh, often so, that, so they could be reached by by the organizers um, putting uh, getting the postal service to put a big mailbox outside the warehouse for workers to put their mail and ballots into which the union protested gave sort of the impression that that Amazon was was monitoring and overseeing the selection when, in fact, it was, that was being done by the federal government, and that's sort of the crux of one of the challenges that they're now making of the fairness of this vote. The odds that they're going to get the challenge will, will get anywhere is, is pretty low. The the other thing that you know the, that the union is up against is simply the fact that, as I said, that the, these jobs are so transient. So for a lot of people, it's just something you're doing for a few months, mm. maybe not even a whole year. You're just you're a young guy. You just need a job for the for the time being, you know, to pay off your car or whatever. And and you're just there. You're doing your job. You're not going to be there for long. You just, you expect so little from the job. And so oh yeah, fifteen bucks an hour is better than you'd be making in fast food. It's okay. It's whatever. It's just something I'm doing for now. It's it's very hard to start thinking in terms of bigger expectations of turning this work into something that's much better paid, much more sustainable, something you would actually build kind of career off of or raise a family off of the way that that the steel mill jobs came to be much better paid and something that, that that was really kind of a middle class kind of existence. In this case, you know, the, the expectations are so low. You barely know anyone maybe who, who who's in a union anymore. Your private sector unions are down to six or seven percent. Right, so right. you don't even, you don't even it's not like you oh yeah, you know, my mom was in a union, my dad's in a union, my I I I, I, I can see what kind of additional benefits and sort of voice in the job and, and, and kind of stature that has brought them. You don't even have that example. So it's yeah. it's really tough. I'm reminded of the, the temp job uh, industry, you know, which uh, fills a lot of jobs with uh, temporary employees so that the companies can avoid paying, you know, full benefits and, and decent uh, wages. So this is it on a massive scale, it seems like. Well, as, as Bob Dylan said long ago, money doesn't talk, it swears. What about the unique political muscle of Amazon? What What are the effects of this exercise of power uh, in Washington, particularly? And I also noticed that, as I read, uh, that uh, the Amazon hired Obama's former head of federal procurement. So how has it affected 
power in Washington and the Democratic Party. Well, yeah, there's a lot to say to this. I mean, they, for starters, the company has just vastly increased its lobbying spending. It's now the second largest spender on lobbying in, in Washington after, uh, pretty sure, Google, it might be Facebook. They're all kind of bunched together. But I know Amazon is second. And they um, and then they just have uh, all this kind of um, you know, revolving door um, folks, people who used to be in government in Washington and now work for Amazon in very high places, including Jay Carney, who's the, who was Obama's spokesman, uh, White House spokesman, um, was also Biden's spokesman before that, and, and is now the head of all sort of political influence operations at Amazon. Um, and, and then you also have people like, like the, the woman you mentioned, Ann Rung, who was the head of all procurement um, in federal procurement, just an incredibly powerful job in Washington under the Obama administration, and then went directly from that job to, to, take, to lead Amazon's new um, business arm that seeks to get uh, to sell stuff to the federal government. So just the, you know, the uh-huh. 180 flipped into the, you know, exactly the, the line of business that she'd been in, but now on the private sector side. Um, and so you have that, that that extraordinary influence. And then on top of that, though, what, what the book really gets into is the way that, ways that Amazon has built up its presence in Washington in ways other than just pure lobbying. It has uh-huh. um, clearly made a concerted effort to, to um, just massively build up its profile in the city in all different sorts of ways, starting with Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post um, back in 2013, um, which you know was on that one hand, you know, seen as sort of a nice philanthropic gesture to to, to kind of buck up the the, the press, um, but of course has given given him and the company an extraordinary um, sort of uh, implicit kind of presence and sway in in, mm. in the city. The come back to the second that the second why that matters the. The, the Bezos then bought the largest mansion in Washington, um, a sort of double-wide mansion that he spent $35 million on. It was a former museum. Um, has 25 bathrooms, which is ironic if you think about the, the bathroom issue at the warehouses. Um, and he's turned it into kind of a salon where he has, you know, sort of big VIP gatherings. Um, and, and then the company has been uh, also getting lots of, um, it's very active seeking contracts from the federal government for its cloud operations. Um, mm. you know, the whole other part of Amazon we haven't even talked about is the Amazon Web Services, web services um, all the data centers that they, that they have that sort of basically are, you know, the, the, that they, where they rent space, essentially, um, server capacity to, to all sorts of companies and the federal government. Um, Zoom, Netflix, so many, so much of our economy kind of runs through through that the Amazon cloud, and and so much of the federal government now, including the CIA, a whole bunch of others, have contracts with Amazon for that for that capacity, and so so they have this massive presence in Washington through through those contracts, and then finally they've now picked picked Washington for the second headquarters, and and so are going to be the largest private employer in the city, you know, in one fell swoop with these twenty five thousand. Um, high-paying jobs and a whole new fancy corporate campus just across the river. And so you end up with what is essentially an Amazon takeover of Washington, D.C. And, and one reason they decide to put mm. the second headquarters there is not just because D.C. has a lot of sort of tech talent for them to, to 
draw to draw on, but because they know that their biggest threat right now comes not from other companies, but from the threat of federal intervention. So what better way to, to sort of stave that off than to be sort of to build up your profile in the seat of the seat of federal power to, to so that you become sort of just, oh, just a friendly neighbor. Um, Amazon is, you know, other, that's just the company that, that employs the, the nice engineer who, who's at my daughter's soccer games, you know, on the sidelines with me. Um, and, and that story of that takeover of Washington has not really been told in Washington right. because, lo and behold, who owns the paper? Right. Oh, my goodness. I was wondering what he was up to because it, it doesn't seem to have affected the editorial stances, but that is, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Boy, just incredible stuff. And Franklin Roosevelt in 1936 declared that businesses must be made answerable to the common good that the common good has to be more powerful than, you know, these businesses. They have to work, you know, under the uh, shelter of the common good. It, it seems like it could be said now that the reverse is true, that much of American government is now under the shadow of the more powerful Amazon, that they are the boss of government. And it seems like the common good is taking a big hit that is that accurate that they're they have this big shadow over like a whole country and that you know all you can do who doesn't buy through amazon it's like there's no other choice it's like i wonder if it should be made and this may be a tad left of center into a public utility since there really is no competition but that's just me and his franklin roosevelt's fifth cousin teddy roosevelt was known for many things one is a trust buster. He came to power in 1901. He targeted the ultra-rich powers and did a lot to rein them in, in service to the common good. It, it does seem like, uh, beginning in the late 70s, many of those regulations were loosened. History, of course, reveals many back and forths in terms of governmental policy. Since the internet, much of our economic structure has changed. I wonder if you could tell us about the remapping of wealth and power, which has resulted from undoing those regulations. Well, that's really what the, what the book is at heart about: is that is the revamping of of our whole economic landscape. You know, this uh, where we've ended up with just this you know incredible divide between these kind of winner-take-all cities like like Seattle, D.C., Boston. New York, San Francisco, and then and then a whole bunch of others that are that have really been kind of left behind, um, and 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 you would think that the company, a company like Amazon would be worried about that extreme imbalance, um, which has become so glaring, and and would have tried to to um, to to do something about it by, for instance, putting its second headquarters in a place that could really have used that boost. In, in one false swoop, yeah. they really could have. Done something to to sort of rebalance the, the landscape of of economic landscape in this country. If they had put the second headquarters in, say, St. Louis, a really struggling city um, um, in the heart of the country, and 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 in fact, the that Amazon did not, not did not include St. Louis even in its final its twenty finalists for that second headquarters, and nor did it include any number of the other kind of classic left behind cities like Baltimore. Or Cleveland or Milwaukee um, were not on that list, and and I asked their um, one of Amazon's original investors, a guy by the name of Nick Hanauer, who's 
become very wealthy off of that initial investment, but has also grown very critical of the company. Yeah. And and he asked him why, you know, why this is back when the list of 20 finalists had just come out and did not include any, any of those left-behind cities. He said, why wouldn't they consider putting the company in one of those? It just would make such a difference. And and he just he laughed at me and he said, you don't understand Bezos at all, do you? And he said, you you have to realize he doesn't think that way at all. He is not thinking about what is best for the country or society at all. He is it's all about what's best for the company. And if he thinks that the best thing for the company is to is to go with a winter city like New York or DC for the second headquarters, that's what he's gonna do. There's just not a single notion about about the sort of broader societal good. Um, and and that's you know that's why we need um, we do need the government. We we're, we are back at a moment now, very very similar to 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 the Gilded Age moment right. of of the, of the of the you know the the the, big, the the giants of the early 20th century. They were in that case, it was companies like Standard Oil that that um, that had just acquired such a stranglehold on our economy because you John Rockefeller owned both you know a lot of the oil producers and he owned the that the railroads that the oil, you know, was was being moved on, and so other oil producers, smaller oil producers, had not didn't have a shot because because they were up against a guy who owned both the platform. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's, it's and it's very similar to what we now have with Amazon, where Amazon owns both the selling platform where we all go to buy all of our stuff, while it's also competing against sellers on that platform, and um, and and so. We are back at that at a kind of a 1910 kind of moment, and the question is whether the government will rise to the occasion the way it did back then. Ah, boy, we can hope so. At least uh, we got Trump the heck out of there. He he also felt that the country was there to serve him, like uh, Bezos thinks the country is there to serve him. So it seems. Um, and, and President Biden is determined to raise taxes on the very wealthy Americans. Jeff Bezos worth. I can't imagine how much money comes his way like every minute. He's worth uh his worth is fast approaching 200 billion dollars. He's already the richest person in the world. Uh, I, the greed is just beyond my comprehension. I hope that someday psychiatrists will be able to treat that stuff. If he paid his fair share of taxes, at least according to Biden's standard, how much money do you think that might bring in to offset the taxes that the rest of us are forced to pay? Oh gosh, I don't even know. I mean, where where you start to make those yeah. kind of calculations, um, you know? And it's it's hard. It's, it's hard. I'm with sure. Like him, where, where the wealth is, it's all sort of so much of it is essentially you know embedded in in stock value, right? And mm-hmm. um, so, but I mean, but but it's but it's worth saying that you know along these lines, just generally speaking, that that what Biden is is proposing is a really big deal, and. Um, especially as regards the capital gains tax. I mean, the, the notion that of uh, the, his proposal to um, to essentially equalize the rates on on regular income, um, mm-hmm. yeah, ordinary income, and and capital gains right. income is a really big deal, that and um, and and would would go go quite a long way actually to to reducing some of this extreme inequality that we've had in recent years. I think that would be a good thing. I mean, heck, Eisenhower, that great lefty Eisenhower proposed, I think it was 92% tax on income over and above a certain amount. 
And uh, as I recall, and it was a pretty high tax rate, real tax rate, I think it was like 70% actually back then. And as I recall, the 50s were a time of great prosperity and a solid middle class. And uh, I, I, I wonder if, um, you know, if Amazon, exposing Amazon and Bezos for all that it is, may be so blatantly egregious and ugly and damaging to democracy that perhaps it can encourage greater demand for corporate accountability. Perhaps your book can be part of that. Being so big and casting such a huge shadow over all of America, how optimistic might you be that Amazon can, can be effectively reined in to instead become itself under the shadow of the common good? You, are you uh, opt- optimistic at all I, on that? that it, you know, by yeah, I'm still it? optimistic, yes. I think that there's actual, there's real ferment now in Washington around this. And there, there's a growing sense that, that something needs to be done about, not just Amazon, but the other tech giants, that this, the, 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 this level of power dominance and, um, within the economy is, is not sustainable and not healthy. And, um, and, and you're seeing signs from the Biden administration of, of them wanting to wanting to take it seriously, and you know, with they've made a couple um, hires that have been pretty notable. They've 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 nominated Lena Khan, who's this uh, young uh, lawyer who, um, who, while still at Yale Law School, uh, wrote this really groundbreaking, groundbreaking article explaining why why Amazon. Had, was becoming a monopoly, and why we needed to rethink our approach to monopoly, monopoly laws to deal with this new threat. Um, and she's now been appointed to the nominated to the Federal Trade Commission. Um, they've also named uh, they brought someone by the name of Tim Wu, um, who's been a really strong voice on antitrust, into the White House as an advisor. Um, and and so there's a sign. There are signs that the Biden administration is going to be charting a new course from the, of the Obama administration, yeah. which was notably lax on this front, basically decided over eight years of, of, of massive growth by these companies. And I, I, you know, we had something called a uh, war of independence. And what that was largely about was uh, being against uh, the concentration of wealth and power in a few aristocratic hands and actually believing in democracy. And the president uh, talked about democracy uh, possibly surviving. Uh, how threatened is democracy in all this, do you think? I mean, it's just, it's such so opposite of, I, I think, what our founders had in mind. Your thoughts? Oh, definitely. I mean, it's, um, it, it, you know, in all different sorts of ways, it's really hard to see how, how you can have so much, um, you know, a healthy democracy in the context of, of such um, economic um, uh, so, 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 so power concentrated in just a few corporate hands. Um, it is not. It's, it's, it is not consistent with with healthy democracy. Um, even you know, in, in some cases, in very specific ways. I think a lot about about what these giants have done to the press and um, mm. and the, the the such a big part of the um, evisceration of the of press, especially the local press, has. Has, had, has come at the hands of, of Google and Facebook's dominant monopolistic takeover of digital ad revenue. I mean, that digital ad revenue is now, is, is you know, yeah. 
the name of the game when it comes to, to ad revenue for, for media, and they, those two companies now control more than 60% of it, zero, 60% of it. And Amazon's actually coming up a strong third in that realm now, too. Um, and so it's inc- just incredibly hard for the local press to, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. to, to survive in that context. And, and then you know, add, on, add on top of that, of course, the fact that we, we've, that, uh, um, that Amazon also really crushed local newspapers by and other local media by by just driving out brick and mortar retail, which was uh-huh. a big source of like display ads for you know department store ads oh, and all right. that. So um, so right there, you, you see how the, the giants have have made uh, has really just greatly undermined healthy healthy free press in this country, which. Is of course such a such a big underpinning of a, of a healthy democracy, and and as you were saying, you know the retail business, they're they're, I mean they're screwed. They can't. How can you compete with that? You can't possibly. And you're right. The lack of advertising in the newspapers, it's really hard for people to not buy on Amazon. And I think a lot of people are feeling powerless. I mean, there is the pro act that we can push for. I mean, I try to buy my books at an actual brick and mortar store. Uh, and sometimes it's actually less expensive that way. Um, what can people do? So I really believe that people have agency in this regard. I, um, you know, I, I don't, I'm not, I, I don't advocate for a boycott or any, or some kind of total extension. Um, but I, but I do believe that we can all um, do our part to 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 moderate our our sort of one quick habits, especially after this year where. Look, it was it was all of us that drove these insane growth numbers for Amazon that we were talking about at the outset here. Yeah. That it was all of us that decided to go sort of fully one click this past year, arguably even in excess of what the kind of public health demands of the moment required. And 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 so coming out of this uh, out of this pandemic moment will be really important for all of us to um, to reengage with the physical world around us, to mm. with our local businesses, with and, and, but even but beyond just our shopping, so you know, in, in other ways too, that to to you know return to the local cinema and the local theater, and 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 not just you know hunker down with our Netflix and our in our our DoorDash, and and return to the local restaurants and bars, and, and and get back out into the actual physical world of the spaces around us, um, because otherwise. You know these places; it's all going to wither, and and we'll, mm. and then you're left with. I mean, it, it can get it gets pretty dystopian pretty fast. <laughs> it certainly does. I know when people have uh, suggested that I watch dystopian movies, I'm like, no, I see enough of it in reality. Hey, this has been a a very interesting and important, I think, interview. Uh, Alec McGillis, thanks so much for being with us. The book is called Fulfillment, and think about that: fulfillment, winning and losing. In one click, America. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive, Alec. And maybe we can keep democracy alive. We got to push. We are not powerless. Right. We, ha- we are agents. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Bert.
Sure. 